0: Good evening, and welcome to Humanities 101. I am Lisa Prince.
1: And I'm Kendra Cowley, and we're the coordinators of Humanities 101, or HUM, along with our amazing volunteers, Anne, Bobby, Claudia, and Jay, and intern Morningstar Willier, we've been putting together weekly HUM classes here on CJSR.
0: Welcome to the second part of our Indigenous Storytelling class. And thank you, Josh, Bonnie, and Tanya, for kicking off our conversation about Indigenous storytelling last week. This week, we will be hearing again from Josh and Bonnie as they continue their conversation with us. We will also meet Naomi McClureth, a local Métis poet, and speak to her about her work with language and identity.
1: Just a reminder for those who might not know what we're doing on air, you're listening to Humanities 101, or HUM. HUM is a free university course that usually meets in person at the U of A and off campus, but due to COVID, we'll now be meeting here on CJSR.
0: You can always reach out for more information at 587-709-5472 or HUM101 at ualberta.ca. You can also check on our website at HUM101onair.ca where you will find past episodes and materials that are mentioned in interviews and also readings to keep us thinking.
1: Last week, we started learning about indigenous storytelling. As we are recording from Amaskwichi Wiskaihegan, and as we move forward and tell stories about this place and from this place, we want to foreground the stories and storytelling practices that have animated this land and area for a very, very long time and continue to do so.
0: We ended our conversation with Josh talking about a paper he wrote and specifically what he says on page two, I quote. In every play I write from an indigenous perspective, my practices as a playwright must always be rooted in positioning myself within the play. By doing so, I avoid extractivism and create a sovereign space of irreconcilable Aboriginality for myself and my people," end quote. If you missed this conversation, we would encourage you to listen and read his article. Both can be found on the HUM website. We pick up our conversation with Josh mid-interview as he begins talking about his play, Rocco and Nakoda, and what it means to perform the play to an audience that is often predominantly non-Indigenous. Welcome back, Josh. Um, I want to just bring it to a play that you have written and has right. reached great success and has some great reviews and wonderful responses. I was able to watch a bit of it on the Fringe TV. Oh, um, there's right. a little plug um, for Rocco and Nakoto, Nakoda, pardon me. That's okay. I'm wondering if you could share with us the story that you're telling through that play. And I would encourage people to go onto the Fringe TV and watch um, Josh perform a part of it
2: Yeah yeah fringe live stream on Facebook it's there uh, in their video section and it's up there right now people can watch it anytime um, I'll probably take it down at some points I don't know but but yeah either way that's a very 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 personal show um, I wouldn't say it's an autobiographical show because you know part of the fun of writing is you, you take parts of yourself and you color them a bit. You dramatize them a bit. You shade it a bit so people don't recognize where the real story comes from. Um, you know, I've had a lot of people ask me word for word, is this exactly what happened to you? And I always say, no. like," But I mean, it is inspired by similar events. So yeah, basically it's, it's a solo show. I play about 12 different characters, but you know, I play two characters for, I'd say, like 75, 80% of the show. That's Rocco and Nakoda. And I guess if you want to talk about the plot, it's basically, you kind of see three separate timelines. The first timeline, you see Nakota, who's a grade six, uh, 12-year-old boy who has returned to school and he's going to read a story to his, his schoolmates in the school gym. So we begin in the school gym and he's gonna read the story about a superhero, what it means to be a hero, and you know all that fun stuff we have to write about his kids. But then he decides really, really quickly he's gonna tell a different story and it's a story about him. So we see him in the school gym narrating to his fellow students. Now the second timeline is in the past where Nakota's Nik- narrating the past to the audience, to the, to the people in the gym. And in the past, Nakoda is very, very, very sick in a hospital. He has trouble breathing. He's fainting all the time. No one knows what's wrong with him. Um, and he's basically, he's hiding how lonely and hurt and scared he is. Uh, and he doesn't know how to own that and doesn't know how to how to speak that truth, so to speak. And then Rocco, his grandfather comes to visit him. His Anishinaabe grandfather comes to visit him and, and just sits with him in his hospital bed and has a talk with him uh, or, or dialogue with him, so to speak. And then Rocco ends up taking him into, I guess, the third timeline, which is like the storytelling realm where Rocco, and this is kind of where I play other characters, where Rocco and Nakoda actually take turns telling each other stories aimed at, teasing out the truth of what's going on in that situation. Um, And some of them are like traditional stories I've heard, you know, as a kid, some, there's one big overarching story that I just made up that was just something that came from me. Um, And yeah, like it's, it's a play, I don't want to give away the ending, um, but it's very much a play about healing and reconnecting with your indigenous roots once you've lost them.
0: Now you've toured this play uh, across Canada for sure. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) How does that feel to tour something like that, that has that intimacy, but is also a performance, but is also a story, but is also so many things. Um, I'm wondering what that feels like to tour that and to different audiences, audiences that are unfamiliar with indigenous storytelling or unfamiliar with your position. What is that like?
2: I could tell so many stories that answer that question. Long story short, it's great. Um, It's probably one of the greatest gifts I've been given um, in this phase of my life. Cause like I, I just on a whim applied to tour a show across the fringe circuit. They have this lottery where artists can apply. They don't have to have a show finished. They just have to apply with a title. If they get drawn, they're automatically entered into however many fringe festivals they want. So like, I truly see it as a gift. I had this rough idea, like, well, I'm going to do a storytelling show. I'm going to apply. And sure enough, I was drawn first. So, and you know, the, the time pressure was like, well, crap, now I have to write this play. But in doing that, you know, I really was able to kind of dig deep. And then because I dug deep and because this show became a very, very, very personal show for me, um, I kind of felt this this weight of touring the show because I was exposing, whether people realized what I was exposing or not, um, there's this weight of, you know, I'm exposing myself and being insanely vulnerable with people I'll never, ever meet several of which I have met since and, um, and just carrying my ancestors with me. You know, I was talking about how storytelling can be, can be a spiritual experience. And it is like, this show is a very spiritual show for me. And like, I, I feel like I carry my ancestors with me. So there's, there's this, this, this real gift, but this real heaviness in sharing that with people and I'm happy to do it. But in doing a show like that, you know, I had to really, really practice self-care while touring the fringe circuit. And when I toured schools here in Edmonton around Alberta and like toured to several other theaters across Canada, you know, I really had to practice um, self-care and, you know, wait, I had to find ways to come into the show, come out of the show. So I was not carrying it with me everywhere I went Um and I could, like, let my ancestors go in a proper, respectful way. I could invite them in in a proper, respectful way. So there's, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes work with this show that really nobody gets to see but me. Um, and it's just, that's part of the weight of touring the show. Is it's work I have to do to be able to do the show. There's other things I have to do, too, physically, like, keep my body warm, keep my voice, you know, in tip-top shape, and you know, make sure I can physically do the show because it is very physically exhausting. Um, I guess that's, that's about just touring the, the show itself in general. In terms of connecting with people, that to me is the biggest gift that this has given me. Because, you know, I, I haven't talked to everybody who's seen the show, but a lot of people have reached out to me. I've, Um, whether that be online or in person, I've had people like strangers come up to me and talk to me about the show and what the show meant for them. It it is a very, very incredible feeling to know your work has emotionally impacted someone and you can hear that response. Um, And in terms of, yeah, bringing this to communities who don't know Indigenous cultures and just haven't been exposed to it, There's, again, another weight that goes with that. And it's a weight, I would argue, every single BIPOC artist out there experiences. It's this kind of double shift we've been calling it, or this double duty where it's I'm an art creator and I'm art producer, storyteller, but I'm also a teacher. I'm also, you know, having to explain things to people when really we just want people to have this general understanding of why we do what we do and, you know, N- not have to play cultural translator the whole time and like from my point of view like many many BIPOC artists I've talked to hate that understandably so um I I don't mind it as much like I I honestly don't mind sharing with people like and I I'm also a teacher like I love drop dropping knowledge bombs to people <laughs> and like but also recognizing it's not a hierarchical thing either that, you know, I also have limits and it's not my job to teach people. I fully recognize that. So yeah, it's, 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 it's an incredible feeling to tour the show. There's definitely a lot of things I've realized touring the show that I was signing up for without realizing I was signing up for it, like teaching the culture and like explaining things to people and just, you know, shouldering that emotionally response that people
0: pass on well thank you no, <laughs> thank no you problem. for sharing with us <laughs> no it's, it's my pleasure
1: thanks josh for sharing your experiences as an indigenous playwright and also as someone who's actively researching and exploring indigenous storytelling methodology you can see a clip from his play rocco and nakoda on our website at hum 101 onairca Last week here in Ham 101, Elder Bonnie shared a bit about the many different ways storytelling is used by Indigenous elders as a teaching tool in the everyday, in ceremony, and in craft. This week, Bonnie shares a story about star blankets.
3: The first time I um, was taught and asked about star blankets is I I went to uh, my first Sundance. My spiritual brother took me and... uh, um, uh, to and to help, you know, to you know, um, help cook and help, you know, we look after the elders and everything while they're they're helping facilitate that that's a very sacred ceremony. And there's all these beautiful star blankets And I was in awestruck with them. I was really drawn to them, and, and so old woman. Is, uh, that's all I know her as, as old woman. Is uh, um, she? Said to me because I was asking questions about them, and so she explained and uh, um, and shared the, the story around the star blanket. And she said, "Now you know, so now you will make one, but with no sewing machine, for your ceremony." To start doing your ceremony, because she knew I was going to be doing. I didn't know at that time I would be in the ceremony, um, but you know, um, it was a teaching. So I did, and I struggled. I struggled, and uh, and over the years, I've I've had incredible things happen for me um, all around that star blanket and the, those teachings, and uh, helping people make those as part of their preparation for their own commitment and their own ceremony, and and so that story was shared with me by other people. There is an old um, elder. I have a laugh. I refer to him as old, but. Uh, he picked me out of a crowd of about 40 of us were at our community lodge one day. And he said, you're the woman I need to talk to about the Star Blanket. He says, I, I, I want to share this story, this teaching with you. He says, because you're going to teach me how to put it together. And we ended up doing a project where we made... Well, in a two-year period, we made well over three hundred star blankets for the children that were aging out of the foster care system, and uh, we would do a blanket ceremony for them and, and the teachings and everything. And uh, um, we did for yeah for a lot of, a lot of kids and uh, and honored some foster parents and and, uh, and that. With the star blankets as well. Anyway, as the story was shared, you know, and I went on this journey, and then more people. um, When I became part of the grandmothers' Sundance, they all uh, various grandmothers. Let's talk about the star blanket story, and you know, and we would share it back and forth, and and even though they were Anishinaabe, and you know, they they had a very different. Not very different, but kind of a different ending, you know, regarding uh, uh, Morning Star. So, um, but all of the teachings and everything were in there; were the same, you know. And that's that's the way it is. And I'll, I'll share the story so you you'll kind of have an understanding, and maybe I can pull out some of the things that of why we use it. Originally, um, there was a. We were a very large nation, and there was a chief that had many daughters, but his oldest daughter, beautiful, beautiful uh, young woman, um, she wasn't interested in getting married, and she had a lot of suitors coming around, and, and her sisters, all of her younger sisters, were nagging her, bothering her, going, Sister, you need to choose a husband because she needed to be married first, being the oldest daughter of the the hereditary chief of a very large nation and uh um and so you know her mother would you know get suitors to come, and then uh, no, no no no, and she was a real daydreamer, and uh, um, she'd be out you know doing berry picking and that, but she'd quickly wander off, and there was a a huge. Stone grandfather in the ground, and on it always that, that morning east sun would always shine on it, and uh, um, she would sit up there and daydream about who the her prince charming, so to speak, would be. Her perfect man and would he come, and and she would see him and see his face in her dreams, but she, you know, none of the suitors or the men in the community or whatever looked like him and she knew she needed to wait for him and uh but she was getting you know she was singing and wailing and and you know because um, she was frustrated because her sisters were upset with her and, um so she was praying for this for this man would come forward um and uh she was, had fallen asleep on the, on this big rock, and uh, um, uh, the sun was hot and bright and shining on her. And uh, um, uh, she started to wake up and think, I'm too warm, i gotta, I got to get out of the sun for a while. And uh, she was startled because she heard this voice going, don't leave, you've been calling for me and calling for me. She turned and here was this beautiful man, that man that was in her visions, in her dreams. Um, and he was wrapped in a buffalo rope and he was beautiful. And uh, um, she said, Who are you and where are you from? And he goes, uh, I am morning star and uh, I come from the star nation and why do you keep calling for me and calling for me? And she said, You're in my visions, you're the you're the man I'm I'm meant to be with. And my sisters are wanting me to marry, and, and, uh, and I just keep going back to you. You're you're the one I'm supposed to be with. And he goes, I can't, I can't be with you. And uh, she says, I'll go with you. And he said, uh, if you do, he said there'll be no, no going back, you know, and uh, and you'll be giving up your your physical come back to the spirit world to the star nation and she said yes and uh, so he opened his buffalo robe to wrap his arms around her and inside the buffalo robe was a beautiful iridescent all the colors of the northern lights and rainbows and this beautiful iridescent uh, uh, star on the inside of of his uh, um Buffalo rope. and uh, he wrapped his arms around her and off they went to the star nation. And they went through a portal and then down came a big grandfather and closed that portal, portal and she noticed that it looked just like the grandfather that was on Mother Earth that she had just left. And, uh, um, and, uh, but she was happy, and she was glad with her decision. And, uh, but Father Sky got very upset, and was booming and storming and creating havoc, and you can't do that, and that, that, that wasn't your decision to bring somebody back to the, the um, star nation. You know, she cannot stay. And Grandmother Moon finally calmed Father Sky down and, and, and said that, She wanted to. She made that choice. She, you know, and so Father Sky settled down and stopped storming, and um, uh, and said, "All right, but the conditions are that she must never return, because uh, um, uh, it's it's not right. To the crater will decide when we come and go through that portal." not us as two-legged and, uh, and so um, uh, and she agreed to that. she said no, no that's fine And so she was very happy it was uh, spent a lot of time with the grandmothers and uh, and the the village and and the berries they'd pick and everything. it was just like being on on Mother Earth it was it was the same and she said that people were very happy and balanced and peaceful and, and there was no pressure you know um, and uh, and pretty soon she was gifted with a child a beautiful baby boy and she was very very happy but after a while after the baby was born she began to think if only my father could see you know because he'll be the, ne- the next chief hey and uh her, she had only had sisters, hey, and no sons, and so her being the oldest daughter and the and, uh, first child that had been a boy, he would be in line he would be the hereditary chief and uh, so she thought important, so she thought oh, well, maybe I'll just peek down and make sure they're okay, and so she goes to that big grandfather and she's yeah, I just, I just want to see that they're okay, I just want to and so she's grunting and huffing and puffing, and she can't budge that big grandfather to open up that portal, so she can see. And uh, pretty soon, along came some cranes. You know, the cranes are like like the coyote here in Treaty Six. The Mesakach, the coyote, is the trickster, the shapeshifter, and and uh, down south and uh, Manitoba. The, the cranes are also the tricksters and the, and the shapeshifters. And, uh, um, uh, and these two cranes came along and they chattering away. And, what are you doing? What are you doing? And so she told them. that She just wanted to take a peek at her family and make sure they were all right. and um, But she couldn't move this big grandfather. And they're like, we'll help you. We'll help you. And so they moved the, put their beaks, long beaks in there and pride and opened it up a, a crack and so she says, I can't see, I can't, end. and they said, Well lean down farther, hang on tight. And she had baby in her arms and and so she was hanging on tight and we'll hang on to you and and then poof and they pushed her down the portal. Down to the earth she came and uh, she woke up on that big grandfather in the sun. Baby was in her arms, and baby was fine. So she got up and she ran back to the village. And the family was all, "Where have you been? We thought we had lost you forever." And and she told them all of her adventures and introduced them to her baby um, that she named Morning Star after her father, and uh, um, and told about the you know the the and how beautiful it was and and kind and. And that's where we'll be returning to, you know, when our time comes. And, uh, and so she was happy to be home. Her father was really happy and everything. And, but after a while, she started to miss Morningstar. And she started to ache for him. And so she started to cry out for him to come to her. And finally he came and he said, why why, why are you calling me? He said, I can't, I can't come. I can't be here. You can't come back. You made your decision," she said. "Oh no, no, but I didn't make the decision," he said. "You made your decision when you let those cranes help you," you know. "Yes, they decided," you know, "but uh, you made the decision to to do that," and uh, um, and so he said, uh, "I can't," and she says, "But I miss you," and he said, "I'll leave you my robe," and so when your time does come. And it's time for you to come back to this donation. You'll know where to come. The robe will guide you. And uh, uh, so she wore that robe and wore that robe. And but she she missed him and missed him and missed him. And one day they were calling for her. They couldn't find her. She didn't come back from berry picking. And her sisters said, "Oh, she's probably on that grandfather daydreaming again, where she always does." And so went to get her. She was there, but she had passed on to the spirit world, and she was wrapped in that buffalo. And so, um, they say that she died of a broken heart. you know that she she just really wanted to go back to the spirit world, and so the Creator took pity on her and took her back. You know, um, but there was a price for that: that her baby had to stay behind, too. and so. As as baby grew up and as the chief got older and everything, he, he wanted to paint a star on the, on the buffalo robe so that he could go to where his daughter was, you know, because he knew it was his time. And, uh, and so they did that for him and they wrapped him in that. And uh, our people we buried on, on the scaffolds, okay, so the spirit. For that transition, for the spirit to leave the physical body, and uh, um, and so originally, and then it became more and more people were like, you know, they they wanted those uh, buffalo robes. You know, everybody as they were getting ready to pass on to the spirit world would um, paint a star on there, you know, to for that journey. Our nation, and so they became. uh, You know how we use coffins. We we would wrap our our deceased for their journey in in uh, a buffalo robe with that that star on it. And so the original star blankets were painted buffalo robes, and they were painted with natural dyes that we would indigo and the ochre and everything that we get from the land and different plants, medicines. And uh, um, then the buffalo came, life went on but the buffalo came, or the, the colonization happened, the buffalo hunt came, the buffalo were wiped out we were starved out, but with, with the European contact came the introduction of cloth, and uh, it was very difficult. Solid colored cloth was (coughs) more difficult than the cloth, and we call it a Metis or a grandmother print to this day, with little flowers all over it, was easier to make and more common. And uh, um, uh, our women were, we knew how to sew, you know, um, and we're very skilled, and so we would sew the dresses and, and everything for the, the women. Um, they would have us make them, and uh, um, we would get the leftover scraps, bits of scraps, and so our women were very talented in that, and they started to piece together bits of cloth um, that they would collect and make that star and, and put it on a blanket, Hey. And, uh, because the buffalo robes were too valuable and they needed them for um, the bedding and for um, the teepees, and you know, um, and they're very few and far between. So, um, as things evolve, hey, and things change. And, uh, um, and then, star blankets they started to become a way to honor and acknowledge. So, when we were doing Our other sacred ceremonies, like our Sundance ceremony, you know, we'd um, gift the Sundance makers a star blanket, you know, and it it was our way of, then they would have that when it was their time to pass to the spirit world, and, you know, and we would um, use it, we started to use it and wrap ourselves in that star in case we didn't, you know, that was our protection. And our connection to the the spirit world um, when we went out to do humblasia, what's called humblatia, and uh, uh, which is a English translation, crying for a vision, um, uh, four day or seven day or um, you know there's a few, but most commonly a four day out with uh, uh, your pipe and your your. St- your protection you're prioritizing you've got your altar and you you're you're looking for that vision and that clarity and it's a um it's a really profound ceremony and uh, a ceremony that our uh we would do with our young men uh, becoming like a rites of passage you know uh, um uh, People that work with medicines and everything. And for me, as I still, I'll do, I'll do a Humbleisha annually. You know, to, to because that's where I, I get my, con- connection and very clear vision and know what my journey for the next thirteen moons, the next year is is going to be and what I need to do. And that's uh, um, always worked very, very well for me. Um, but then after our ceremonies, then that star blanket that protected me and has my prayers in it for those four days, we would gift to an elder or gift to someone that is uh, uh, not well. Um, and when they're not, when they're struggling, could, um, they wrap themselves in in the, that blanket, and the, that blanket was for them for their healing. So they're very sacred to us, and we use them in our Naming ceremonies, we have adoption ceremonies, making up relations. Uh, um, we will we'll honor people, um, you know, and give them a star blanket, uh, and so it's not just a, a pretty quilt and nice to have. There's a real significance to that, and it's a, uh, acknowledging your connection and your journey back. And so, you know, we use them for for prayer. We wrap ourselves in and cultures evolve and uh, um, uh, in that whole story around the star blanket you know that there's uh, the teachings around you make a commitment for something and, and about not taking shortcuts and you can't have everything or what we think we want or whatever and uh, um, and and being responsible for the choices we make you know, there's all kinds of teachings in there, and, but there's teachings about um, it's it's not up to us to decide, you know, um, certain things and and mm-hmm. around natural law and around our relationship with the star nation and with the earth and uh, Mother Earth and and all of those things. I could tell that story throughout my grandchildren's lives and pull out a different teaching out of that story every time to help teach them the values, our relationship with our own spirit and our relationship with the Creator, our relationship to the earth, our relationship to all the interconnectedness of us all, you know, um, the resilience of us in terms of how, when we lost the buffalo and how devastating that was for us, especially. The plains um, uh, uh, tribes; uh, that it was devastating, and but how resilient, and how we we overcame that, and uh, um, uh, you know, and uh, was was able to still can do our ceremonies, um,
0: and uh, because for us that's what's important. Thank you, Bonnie, for sharing that story with us. Bonnie also shared some images and her own story about a very important star blanket that was made for her. You can find these images in your monthly kit or online. Just a reminder that you are listening to Ham 101 and we are Lisa Prinz and Kendra Cowley. And you can tune into the show every Friday from 6 to 7 p.m. here on CJSR 88.5 FM. If you have any questions or if you have a story you'd like to share with us, you could reach us at 587 709 5472 or ham101 at ualberta.ca. And you could also check out our website at ham101onair.ca. Next up, we have a local poet, writer, and teacher, Naomi Makureth, but she introduces herself much better than we can.
4: Naomi <laughs> A miskwachi waskaikine Moya e nita nehiyawe Maga e notei nita nehiyawe yan. Ayisk notawipan eki A maga moya eki nehiyawe ek eimuniawe. Maga wia oce aayikisagaikinek. E kwa nekawi e mio apitao koro sisana um so, what I just said, I'm going to, I'm, my name is Naomi McElrath, and I said I am from Ameskwetsi, which is Beaver Mountain House. And I said that I am not a good, I'm not a fluent speaker of Cree, but, uh, that, but I really want to be because my late father, he spoke Cree so beautiful, it was like bright colors. And then I said, but he wasn't Cree, he was a white man, but he grew up at Frog Lake, where my grandparents were teachers. And then I said, my mom is a beautiful Métis woman. And then I said, me? I'm a crazy white lady, (laughs) because I look white. (laughs) It's just a joke I like to have, but I am actually a Métis person. I am the author of a book called *Kiam*. It's a tiny little book of poems. I'm a writer, I'm a poet, I'm a peacemaker. I'm the quintessential second-born middle child of three girls until two weeks before my 10th birthday, my brother came along on Valentine's Day. So anyways, (laughs) as a middle child, as a Métis person who appears so white, that is my uh, my special um, role in life, to make peace and try to connect both sides or connect people of differing opinions.
0: You see yourself as a peacemaker in between those places, and I'm wondering if you could speak to that in regards to language, which seems to be a large part of this book. So for those of who don't know, this book is written in both Cree and English, mm-hmm. and it yeah. speaks, um, the first, it introduces itself and introduces the reader, it starts talking about uh, Cree, the language Cree. Uh, and Plains Cree and talks about how to pronounce it. And you do this in a very interesting and beautiful way. And I'm wondering if you could tell us why you started the book with that and about what it means to write between languages and why that was important.
4: There's this beautiful irony in my family that my my father who was white um, was raised on the Frog Lake uh, First Nation, Fishing Lake First Nation and the Elizabeth Métis Settlement from the age of four to about 14 or 15. My grandparents were teachers and they were traveling. and So they left them there in the care of the community, the old ladies. So he grew up speaking English and Cree. He entered the community with a four-year-old's ability with, in English and then was completely immersed in Cree. There was no other white kids, no other white people. He was a completely, fully bilingual man. And we say, ekipa kaskit means he spoke Cree like a colors in the rainbow. And so it's been latent. It's always been there. I've always known that um, you know, you grow up the way you grow up and thing, the way that you grow up is, is your normal. And so, but in grade six, we had this assignment. I don't remember what the assignment was, but the result of my work on the assignment was this little tiny, I'm holding in my hands and I'm showing Lisa over the Zoom thing. Um, This little tiny three-ring binder, it's green. It says Cree English Dictionary. And in my grade six perfect handwriting, as as good as I could do, I say, in this book I have put in as many words as possible. And I didn't know anything. For some letters, it was not possible to get any words. For other letters, I got as many as 23. I hope you like it, for it should be easy to read. And then I just did that. The reason... For some letters it was not possible letters like uh and and though not letters but those sounds don't uh exist in plains creek they might exist in other dialects but not in in plain Cree. my dad's spoke plains creek so i put together this this little book you know with all with the english words and the Crete. and i remember in grade six going around the house of my dad and he would say the words my dad spoke Cree but he didn't write in Cree so he would say the words like five times or however many times I needed for him to repeat it so that I could write it phonetically so this is all this is totally totally phonetic you know between grade six and 37 so grade six I was 12 25 years later I was in a class and a literature class and I asked the professor why in a in a colonized country should the people learn English and his response to me was in order to um, meet your colonizer and perhaps overcome them you need to think like them and in order to think like them you need to know their language so then I started thinking about how th- our thoughts and our language and the way we speak how that's all kind of mixed in so I want to go back to the question I don't want to get too far away from it about I, I am focused on language with my white skin I inherit some some white privilege so I can't there are some stories I can't tell um, I wasn't raised on a reserve I wasn't I didn't go to residential school so I I, I can only tell our story our own story my story and just humbly respect other Indigenous people who tell their story, because not every Indigenous person is going to have the same story. Not every Indigenous person is going to have the same experience. There are some stories, like sacred stories, that are not mine to tell, and some stories in traditional Cree culture, where you only tell them in the winter, some you tell in the summer, some stories women only tell women, and some stories men only tell men. So I really love stories. We live and we breathe, and we are born, and we die, and we bleed by stories, and um, they're what stories are. I think what where we find our common humanity.
0: I'm wondering what that uh, if you could tell me about maybe what that feels like for you to write in poems, um, and why you choose to write in poetry, or maybe it's not a choice.
4: Yeah, you know, sometimes it's a choice, and sometimes it isn't. I actually like that distinction. I wonder if I could. A read a, a short poem as part of my response about because um, you because we share this interest of language and how language how the language we use shapes the story or yeah so I have a I have a, uh, a poem it's on page 150 of my of my book it's called like a bead on a string like a bead on a string like an umbilical cord the rainbow connects sky to earth Mother and child hold each other close. Like a rawhide rope, the vocal cords secure the gift of story and song. Grandfather and grandchild hold each other close taps pisakanape piksquea pia e te papita ni ekowesona cemu nei konektamo wen ea quase tenetotic musum like a bead on a string my great grandmother sits next to her kin just long enough for me to reach for her hands taps so I picked this poem. Um, it was the first poem I thought of because uh, Lisa, you asked me to talk about you know, why do I focus on language and why uh, and what does language do to my thought processes and my process of telling stories. And so we have this colonial history that, in so many ways, has can disconnected people from who they are. And um, because I was raised in this city and I wasn't raised in an Indigenous community, I will, st- I will stand firm and I'll own my, um, not my privilege, not my right. I'll own my, my hope. I'll own my desire to connect to who I am through the language. I spent a lot of time in dictionaries um, because I don't have the ability currently to be immersed in Indigenous communities. So I discovered this word. Well, I'll go back. For some reason, I'm always interested in language. Years and years and years ago, when I worked in, in outdoor education, I used to drive all over the province, and I was in Calgary. And one of the freeways in Calgary is called the Shaganapi Trail. Because I was in Calgary because I didn't know then what I do now, I thought that Calgary was Blackfoot country. And it is, but Blackfoot country is much bigger than just Calgary and and Treaty 7, or or Blackfoot Reserve. So I thought shaganapi was a a Blackfoot word. Until about maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I discovered the word bisakanapi. It's it's a Cree word, and it means rawhide. And so shaganapi trailing, shaganapi is an anglicization of the Cree word, pisakanape. And to me, it just resonated with my heartstrings. And so I, I looked it up and it's like, um, and there's so many words like pisamwayape, uh, pisakanape. There, there are so many words that have this "A-yape" suffix, and it's metaphorical. And so when you ask me, how does language, how do I work? Well, I'm a poet, so I work with metaphor and simile and, and comparisons. And like, uh, moccasin string has maskesinei uh, yape. There's so many of these words that have this e chain, a uh, yape suffix. I saw a metaphor in the language and in, in the word for pisamweyape um, is like a rainbow where it's a long something long and stringy that's that's connects something to something, so even an umbilical cord has this a yapis suffix in it, and I thought, well, wow, yeah, like like an umbilical cord, the rainbow connects sky to earth, mother and child hold each other close. What a beautiful metaphor, yeah. So I try try to uh, be respectful and how I use language. So as a peacemaker, I fundamentally believe that if the human brain is capable of being bilingual or multilingual, then we can make peace. If the human brain um, has the capacity to think in two or three or four distinct ways, according to the, the rules of those languages um then we don't have to kill each other that's what i think
0: we feel really lucky that you shared a new poem with us yeah my big red canoe yeah now when i talked to you about this interview you had said that you would tell us a bit about that poem. You suggested that that could be included. And I'm wondering if you could. Um, I think it connects kind of to what we've been talking about and might be a nice way of sewing some of those thoughts together.
4: How would I tell you the story of how I wrote the poem and then read the poem? When I was a young person, like even in my 20s, I could hardly talk. I was so, uh, so shy. So I've invested my life um, in learning how to do that. It's why I became a writer. It's, I have so much going on inside my heart and inside my head that I needed to find a way to be able to express that. So that's why I studied English, English literature, social studies, um, learning how to talk. So interestingly enough, as such a shy person, in the last six months, this is probably the 10th or 11th interview I've had. And so in the spring, last last winter, the Jewish Senior Citizen Center and Anna Marie Sewell, who is a local Indigenous poet, um, they work together to bring a, a speakers and a writer's series together called From Survival to Thrival about shared historical experiences. And in the spring they asked me to make a presentation on living in two worlds. That's where this poem comes from. This thinking about we're here together. Let's make the best of it. My big red canoe. man. Let's go to the great gathering place. Come, I'll take you in my big red canoe. There, on the other shore, we'll meet our friends and relatives and we'll visit and talk for hours and days, just as the breeze and the leaves talk for hours and days. Only after we thank the grandfathers, sky and Buffalo, and the grandmothers, River and Antelope, and our cousins, Moose and Sturgeon, will we build a fire and feast on the riches of this great gathering place in between. We'll thank River Kisiskatsu-wan-e-sipi and we'll thank Fire Iskoteo, for giving us life. Here at this great gathering place, with the North Shore joined to the South Shore by the life-giving waters of Kisiskatuwanisipi, we'll talk of good things and bad. We'll celebrate, and solve problems. We may even agree to disagree, but let's always be gentle. Let's always be generous. Let's always be kind. And let's always love. Our friends and relatives, as we revere river, as we revere fire, giving us life. Come, let's go to the great gathering place. I'll take you there in my big red canoe. I
0: think that's a really important poem for us to listen to right now. I think more than ever, we're really needing to imagine uh, more hopeful possibilities and uh, imagine just the possibilities of making peace and meeting somewhere in a gathering place and mm-hmm. and gathering, quite, quite literally gathering together, um, yeah. both uh, as in physical spaces when we are kept apart due to the pandemic, but also ideologically we really we're living mm-hmm. in a very divisive and angry time yes so
4: i i really appreciate that that's what you get because that's what i intended from it can, can i finish with reading a poem absolutely near the north saskatchewan river here in this old waiting place on the old north trail like the people of long ago, we wait, Nipeho nan, as the elder's helper, Oscapewis, fills the pipe with Kanikinik, so the men can smoke together. Smoke from ancient tobacco, stretches backward and forward, like the river reaching, here and now a prayer hovering between the past and the future. And the women sit facing the men, a bridge to tomorrow. Uh, You've been
0: incredibly generous with uh, your words, so I really appreciate that. I
4: I hope that you're the listeners and will enjoy our conversation today.
0: Thank you, Naomi, for sharing your teachings, experiences, and poetry with us. You can find copies of the poem, My Big Red Canoe, that Naomi gifted us for the curriculum, in the monthly kits and online. Indigenous storytelling and stories cannot, nor should they, be contained in two episodes. We will continue to hear from Indigenous storytellers throughout the term. There are more than 600 nations in what we now know as Canada and it is important to note that only a few were represented here.
1: Last week, we introduced our activity for the month, writing an I Am From poem. You can find directions in the kit and online. There are no deadlines or grades that come with the assignments and they're not required to participate. You can submit them at any time throughout the course. We would love to read them, and if you're comfortable, we'd love to read them on air. You can submit completed activities by emailing us at hum101 at ualberta.ca, by phone at 587 709 5472, or by mail. We'll get you some stamped envelopes if you need. The address is hum101, courtesy of CJSR, room 0 09, Students Union Building, University of Alberta, Edmonton, Alberta. T6G 2J7 Canada. This is a reminder that if you're needing things to participate and work on assignments, let us know. There's a really good chance that we might have what you need and that we can find a way to get it to you. Now we're gonna to end today's class with an I Am From poem.
5: Where I am from by Josh Isaac Ice. I am from a house on top of the hill full of tin boxes of olden times. A basement of games of which you could play with others or yourself. I am from pantries full to the rafters, cupboards bulging out, spilling slightly the rice or potatoes of which it holds, early Sunday morning brunches with my cookum, of eggs, bacon, and the fluffy airiness of my mother's pancakes. I am from, if the boy isn't dead, he's gonna wish he were, and if you put something back where you found it, in the same condition or better, You will always know it will be there for the next time of use. I am from Eric Clampton and Janice Joplin, lightly flowing throughout the house, and the words, don't you know you're riding with the king, blaring noisily on a Saturdays when my parents be cleaning. I am from a neighborhood, quiet during the day, but at night you would see all the kids out coming together to play kick the can and coming home with broken limbs. From the sounds of the Blue Jays from the feeders my father put out in the trees in front of the lawn in the early spring.
0: Thank you so much to everyone who participated in today's class and all the people that continue to support Ham 101. And thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Jason Boris and Chris Harper of AG 47 for the theme music. Next week, we'll be exploring the relationship between food and story and do we have some tasty guests coming on air. So get your apron on and tune in to 88.5 CJSR next week at 6 p.m. See you then.